0: At the time of his royal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus finally fully and publicly accepts his role as the Jewish Messiah, while transforming that role in the ears of his closely listening disciples. At the same time, Jesus settles himself firmly within the tradition of ancient Hebrew prophets. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. to gospel doctrine today's lesson matthew 21 through 23 mark 11 luke 19 through 20 and john chapter 12 all the accounts of jesus of the triumphal entry of jesus into jerusalem among many other things and i don't think there is a lesson for which i've had to work longer to prepare since i began the podcast over a year ago uh, there is just so much to cover in these lessons, so we might go a little long. But I offer that without apology, because uh, there's so many brilliant connections to make in the scriptures for this week that uh, I just had to do it all justice. In fact, there's so much to teach in these lessons that I've decided to split this week's lesson into two parts, uh, and I hope you'll have time to listen to both. And each. Will probably be about the length of hopefully shorter than an hour each, but uh, far too long for a single lesson. So I'm going to split this week into two. Uh, first thing to cover is uh, I have a couple of recommendations this week. Number one, I recommend a video from a group that I haven't mentioned in a while, the Bible Project. And this is a fun. Uh, Set of videos. If you want to understand the books of the Old Testament, I used to recommend the Bible Project a lot when we were studying the Old Testament. Because uh, if you want to just have an eight-minute introduction into what is going on, the historical background, the thematic, uh, the arc of an entire book of the Old Testament, it's a great way to watch a little video and see represented um, in an animated video what what's going on in that book of the Bible. Well, this week I'd like to recommend if you search for Bible Project and then Heaven and Earth, uh, what what this video is about is it kind of ties the Old Testament idea of the temple and the tabernacle to what's going on in the New Testament and how Jesus is the fulfillment of what the temple was just the promise of. Um, so again, that's Bible Project. Search for Heaven and Earth, and I, I believe that's also about eight minutes long. Um, it, it's this is a, a Protestant group that puts this together. However, the in my opinion, there's nothing in that in that uh, video that a uh, Latter Day Saint wouldn't perfectly agree with. Another recommendation I have just this just happened to fall. Um, I was about to recommend it last week, but I felt like it fit better this week. Uh, it just happened to fall in the perfect timeline for us to study, and and this is a a podcast by a political commentator named Ben Shapiro. But every, however, every Sunday he does an interview that often doesn't have much to do with politics. Uh, sometimes it does, but in this case, um, it it's more about religion. So this is the Ben Shapiro Sunday Special, episode fifty, and that was the May twelfth episode, and he interviewed a man named. William Lane Craig, a Christian philosopher, and uh, more, more specifically, a philosopher. Someone who has made his life's work out of uh, proving the existence of God through logic and debate. And so this man goes around and debates atheists and, and proves through um, the things that we can observe and deduct that God must exist. And he goes further in this episode, I thought it was fascinating, because he not only proves that God exists, or or at least claims to prove that, but then goes further and proves that Judaism was true, proves that Christianity is the logical offshoot of Judaism, and that Jesus must be the Messiah. And one of the reasons why I am recommending it is because Ben Shapiro, the host, is an orthodox Jew. And so they have a lively discussion about the what it meant to claim to be a Messiah in the time of of Jesus. Uh, you can tell that it's it's a little interesting because you can tell Ben Shapiro is sort of disagreeing with what his guest is saying because obviously uh, he takes the Jewish view that Jesus was not the Messiah, and um, but he doesn't. He also doesn't want to be rude and contradict his guest, and so. Uh, the the Christian philosopher has the has the last word. However, you can kind of see the Jewish viewpoint, which would have been the viewpoint of the the Sanhedrin and the chief priests at the time of Jesus, and then you can see the Christian viewpoint, which w- would have been the viewpoint of Jesus Jesus's disciples. So, um, all of these these two viewpoints are about to come into uh, violent confrontation as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So as always, should you like to contact the show, please email me at gt at com. I also have uh, sometimes people send me messages in my inbox to the Gospel Doctrine page on Facebook. Uh, remember, we really appreciate your five-star reviews on iTunes and Facebook and on uh, SoundCloud. So uh, anywhere you can... Share or promote our posts and get more listeners coming. We we appreciate that so much. Um. So to this week's questions, uh, we had a couple of uh, responses. First from Janelle, and uh, Janelle is discussing the the episode with Jesus and the fig tree that he the withering of the fig tree. And she asks, uh, the scripture in Matthew doesn't mention this, but Mark says that it wasn't the season of figs. It seems discordant since in Ecclesiastes we learn that there is a time and season for everything. If it wasn't the season of figs, why would the Lord expect figs? How does this relate to us, expectations of the Lord and our own expectations for ourselves? Superficially, I see the Lord expecting more of us than we can give. But this doesn't jibe with the Lord's pattern of line upon line and mercy as we learn. Uh, This is a wonderful question. So, the... The idea is that Jesus it, treats this fig tree, he's, he's almost cruel to this fig tree as he comes out and withers it. And as Mark says, it's the time of figs was not yet uh, in the in the King James Version. Um, so I, I can say to Janelle, stay tuned because we'll talk a lot about this fig tree and hopefully it'll become clear in today's lesson. Um, that being said, um, Charlie has responded. He, she responded weeks ago, but I've been saving her response. So this was a question I've been asking, and and you may guess, uh, if you're very sharp, you may guess that uh, this is the week where I'm going to respond to this question I asked a long time ago, and this is from Luke chapter 13, the parable of the fruitless fig tree. And at that time, Luke Jesus taught in Luke 13, and Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a fig tree. And there's a man who has a fig tree in his garden and he tends it and he prunes it and he takes care of it for three years. And then he says to his servant, he says, uh, I'm, this fig tree is not bearing any fruit. I'm going to destroy it. And the servant says, give it some time. Let's do it one more year. I'm going to take extra special care of it. And then if, if it doesn't bear fruit, then you can destroy it. But, but who knows that it will bear wonderful fruit that you can put up, uh, for yourself against the season. So, Um, I asked a couple of weeks in a row, I said, if you have an idea of what this parable meant, and this was not just in Luke, but this is one of the places where we found it, the first place we found it, Um, then, then let me know, right? Because the rest of the parables in that chapter were offered with an explanation. They were likened to the kingdom of heaven, and then Jesus explained it to his disciples. But the parable of the fig tree was offered without explanation. And... Uh, in, in case you're thinking ahead of me, uh, you'll, you'll realize there's a, there's a fig tree in the, in today's lesson. And, uh, if you're guessing that they're related, then you're right. Um, but Charlie has written, and I think this is actually brilliant. Uh, she says, the numbers used in this parable are significant in the creation. The third day is the day of fruit yield and consequently harvest. The fourth day, however, is the day of light and of time, and consequently, mortality. Applying this to the fig tree parable, the owner of the vineyard comes in the day of fruit, the third day, uh, and, and harvest, looking for figs, and finds none. He wants to cut it down, as is just. However, the dresser of the vineyard intercedes on behalf of the tree, essentially asking mercy. The Dresser of the garden was the job given to Adam and Eve before transgression and mortality, while they were still perfect. In this parable, the dresser of the vineyard asks for a year of light, He asked for time to nurture and nourish the fig. He asked for more time to allow the tree to prove itself. Uh, That was a lot of detail to say the parable of the fig fig tree uh, represents the coming of Christ. I think this is a wonderful take. Um, And as as I've said before, the the Bible is not just scripture, but it is also great literature. It is great literature in every sense of the word, and especially uh, the Book of Luke and the Book of John. These these are works in the tradition of of classical Greek literature and, and of uh, Greek philosophy, meaning they change our thoughts, and they would have been available at large to the Greek world, um, and they would have they would have had a tremendous impact on Greek philosophy. I don't mean that they arose from Greek philosophy but that they would have taken their place uh, among the in the libraries of Greek philosophers and had their influence there so uh, that being said this everyone can have li- the the mark of literature the hallmark of literature is that everyone can have their take and it can be perfectly valid and perfectly wonderful so I think this is um, this is an idea well worth exploring it isn't the same interpretation that I had but I like it quite a bit so I will answer that question. What does this uh parable of the fig tree mean uh, as we go through today's lesson? So the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're gonna begin in time, we're gonna we're gonna begin and end the way a lot of wonderful scriptures do in the same place. Um and so, in that sense, we'll have a little bit of a chiasmic structure today to today's lesson. And we'll begin and end in John chapter 12. Um, so John 12 begins with Jesus having a dinner in the, in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Uh, actually, the home of Simon, which we only learn, there are a couple of different accounts of this dinner, uh, we only learn that it was the home of Simon, who, who seems to be the father of Judas Iscariot. However, Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus are all in attendance, and it's in Bethany, which is near their home. So Jesus is having a dinner there, and uh, Mary comes up either behind Jesus or comes up to Jesus and anoints him. Um, and in Matthew, the we're not covering the Matthew account of this dinner because Matthew has a slightly different timeline, and he puts it closer to the Last Supper, Um, But in the Matthew version, Mary anoints his head. In the John 12 version, Mary anoints his feet. In either case, it's a costly anointing. um, And Judas Iscariot is upset and he says, you know, this is 300 300 pence or, you know, quite a large amount of money. I mean, uh, thousands of dollars, you might think, in today's money, if you were to try to translate it into the amount of time it would take you to earn that much. Uh, thousands and thousands of dollars maybe even more and so Mary has taken this very costly ointment and anointed Jesus and Judas says why don't why didn't you save that and donate it to the poor and uh so Jesus then responds and he says look first of all let her alone because um and as Matthew reports anytime anyone talks about my death and burial, and my the final days of my ministry, they're going to report that this woman has done this kind thing to me. She has anointed me against the day of my burial. So, number one, John, uh, John reports that Jesus is doing this six days before the Passover. So the countdown has begun. This is Holy Week. And so here we are at the beginning of Holy Week in, in our studies and we skipped ahead a little bit when we did our easter lesson but um it was kind of fun to go back in time and realize we had a little bit more time to study jesus before uh his final days but now we're we're back we're right back there again and so our time is limited to study uh the life of jesus together and the countdown has begun um and we're going to come back to this idea of jesus being anointed jesus says that he she has anointed me against the day of my burying. Now, that's not the only purpose of this anointing, and we're going to tie this together in a few minutes. Um, there, As I mentioned before, there I probably have not spent more time preparing for any single lesson that I've done, and that's because I would guess that if I were to choose how much time to spend on these scriptures that are all lumped into one lesson, I would spend at least two weeks... In the Matthew chapters uh, twenty-one through twenty-three, um, I would probably put Mark eleven in with one of those two lessons. I would spend it. I would spend a week on Luke chapter nineteen and twenty, and I would spend at least one week, maybe two, on John chapter twelve. So this is five weeks worth of material, and um, we're going to be jumping back and forth between them. So right now I'm going to jump back in time a little bit. Um, first of all, in John chapter 11 that we studied a couple of weeks ago, that was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And at the time, it was clear of the of the timeline of Jesus um, beginning entering his final week. It was very close. So we've been studying number one. We've been studying Jesus's final road trip uh, from Caesarea Philippi, where where Peter made his confession. All which is far in the north of Israel, all the way south to Jerusalem, <clears throat> and coming through Jericho, and then uh, west to Jerusalem. At the same time, we have been studying the months before that, how Jesus went to Jerusalem for a couple of different feasts in John when we study John. So John tackles these things a little differently and doesn't spend that much time on the road trip. Now, um, probably a couple of weeks before... Jesus has his triumphal entry. No more than that is, is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so the, the fever, the resistance around uh, to Jesus and the idea that Jesus is the Messiah has reached its, its height. And so what probably happened is that Jesus made this road trip or made this journey on foot uh, down south and then briefly visited Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, and then went back to, or this is what seems to be the case, and then went back to Jericho. So um, we're going to go back to Jericho with him, and Jesus is passing through Jericho at the beginning of uh, Luke chapter 19. And the, none, of the other, none of the synoptic evangelists have recorded Jesus' um, taking a sojourn into Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead and then coming back to Jericho. We have to put that together from the relative timelines of the events. So it's a guess. Um, But so Jesus is passing through Jericho and there's there's a publican. And if you remember, the publicans are these hated figures who, though Jewish, have collaborated with the Romans to collect taxes and deliver the tax money from Jews to Romans. So the Jews don't really respect the publicans because they're Jewish, and the, uh, because they are collaborating with the Romans, they're helping the Romans, and the Romans don't respect the publicans because they're Jewish. And so they're outcasts from, the, everyone hates them. And Matthew, in, in fact, is one of these, or formally, one of these types of people. Well, Zacchaeus, a man who was the chief publican of all of Jericho, happens to be a fan of Jesus, we're going to talk a little bit about what might be his background in a moment. But um, and the, the scripture describes him as being small in stature. So he's a short man. He can't see over the crowd. And so he climbs a sycamore tree and wants to see. He, it's so important to him that he sees Jesus pass by. Well, Jesus knows Zacchaeus' heart and walks right up to the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Because this night, am I going to eat in your house? And once again, I mean, this is right in line with what Jesus has been doing his entire trip. He has been eating in the homes of publicans and sinners and even sex workers and other terrible, and lepers. I mean, he's, he's spending time around people that could infect him with disease that would make him ritually impure. And we've talked a little bit about the idea that the, the impurity of others does not, Infect Jesus the way it would, the the way it's described in the book of Leviticus. That if you touch someone who's ritually impure, then you become ritually impure. But we learn from Jesus that he can put his hand on a leper and take the leprosy away. And so, in this case, it's not just impurity. Or up until Jesus came along, it was it was only impurity that was contagious. But with the power of God in Jesus, is that his his holiness could actually spread in the opposite direction. So Jesus has, uh, this is right in line with what Jesus is doing, is he's spending time with outcasts and sinners, and uh, in line with his, his constant saying that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So he eats in the home of Zacchaeus that night, and Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. And furthermore, if... I have stolen. If I have unrighteously taken taxes from anyone, I'm going to restore to him fourfold. Now, now this first of all, the the giving of his goods to the poor. Um, let's go back to last week. Think about what we talked about. It was the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and saying, "Lord, you know what? What is it going to take for me to be perfect?" Remember, we talked a lot about uh, telos. What? What does it take to ripen, to mature, to become the thing that we were meant to be? And that was the counsel that Jesus gave to this rich ruler. And Zacchaeus is also described as a rich man. Well, at the time, Jesus described a rich person entering into the kingdom of heaven as utterly impossible. He even used uh, the metaphor of a camel going through the eye of a needle to show how impossible it was. And then he said, with God, however, all things are possible. So remember, in the original scriptures, these chapter divisions are not actually um, from the original authors. They're sort of artificial. They're imposed after the fact. So chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 and 19 were written to be read right in a sequence. So the fact that they're separated for us by a week, I want I wanted to remind you of what we've just been studying because Jesus has just told everyone how impossible it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And here we see a rich man giving half his goods to the poor, restoring fourfold according to the law of Moses of anything that he's taken unrighteously. And Jesus says, this day has salvation come into thy house. In other words, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Salvation, you you are fully approved. here's the other thing that's interesting. he's only giving half his goods to the poor we can presumably uh, conclude that he's still going to be a rich man when he's done. so the thing the very thing that Jesus has described as being impossible is now happening right in front of our, our eyes just a few verses later on and the, the whole point is how does this the question that obviously comes up how does this happen? And Jesus gives us the answer, with God, nothing is impossible. And to me, when Jesus says with God, it evokes that phrase from from Matthew, which is his name is Emmanuel, God with us. So with God, with us, nothing is impossible. The fact that Jesus is with Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus is humble enough to accept Jesus is the reason that nothing is impossible. Here's my uh, further take on this. If you remember, when John the Baptist was baptizing in Jordan, the River Jordan, the place where Jesus was baptized is less than uh, is a is a couple hours walk, if that, from from where Jesus would have run across Zacchaeus if he was truly in Jericho. And so, it's quite possible. It, the The scriptures describe John as having uh, publicans coming unto him each group of people is saying, what what shall we do to bring forth fruit, meat for repentance? And John's counsel to the publicans at that time was, exact of people no more than that which is allowed by law. In other words, just be fair. That's all you have to do. Be honest, be honest people. Even though you're a publican, you don't have to stop being a publican. You just have to be honest. And of course, obey the law of Moses. So, um, I don't know, but... It seems interesting that Zacchaeus's location is close to where John was baptizing, and it's possible that either he was there in person, or he heard about John's teaching. In any case, we know he was touched by something. He was spiritually touched by some message from somewhere, and he has already made the decision before he met Jesus to do the right thing. And I love that this story comes after the story that we, that we learned last week of this rich young ruler who walks away sorrowing. He wasn't yet ready to make the sacrifice that Jesus had asked him to make. But here we have somebody who is already prepared to make that sacrifice. And presumably some time has gone by since the time that he was invited to change. Maybe even three years, the entirety of Jesus' ministry, he's been thinking about when I, when I next get an opportunity to change, I will take it. I will take it uh, enthusiastically and eagerly. And so that's why I wanted, to, I wanted to bring that up, because that's why I have hope for the rich young ruler that walked away sorrowing. Because here we see that nothing is impossible. Jesus can change someone's heart with God, with us. Nothing is impossible. Our hearts can change and a rich man can enter the kingdom of heaven and we see one who won't and then one who will one right after the other that's Luke chapter 19 it continues with the parable Jesus then it says he wants to get across the idea that the kingdom of god is not immediately going to come upon us like the in other words he's trying to teach that he's not the kind of messiah that they're expecting and he gives what's called the parable of the pounds this parable is closely related to the parable of the talents, which we won't discuss this week. That, that's in Matthew. So here in uh, Luke 19, the parable of the pounds. It's a little similar. There's a there's a master who's leaving on a journey, and he gives three of his servants three uh, some some money for them to invest. So in this particular case, uh, he's a nobleman, and he's leaving to a far country to receive a kingdom. Now this this tale as as explained in Luke 19, parallels the story of Herod Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, when he was made king over uh, Israel and the surrounding, Judea and Perea and the, and the surrounding lands, uh, he had to travel to Rome to receive the blessing of Caesar and receive his title of king under the emperor. And Herod Archelaus had to do the same thing, and everybody knew this. So Jesus is describing a man going into a far country to receive a kingship. Meanwhile, the people at his home that he's leaving send a delegation along with him or, or at the same time going to the same place to say, by the way, we don't want this man to be our king. We hate him. He's a terrible ruler. And so it seems to be that Jesus is almost like he's telling the story of Herod Archelaus. Or in other words, he's using the story of Herod Archelaus to make it familiar. However, it's obvious from the context that Jesus uh, is the nobleman in this story. So the point is, he has to go on a journey, and his, one of his servants, when he comes back, one of his servants has taken this amount of money, and this amount of money is called a mina, it's a hundred talents, uh, or uh, sorry, a hundred denarii, which is, uh, remember this is a day's wage for a Roman laborer. So it's one-sixtieth of a talent, which is that huge amount of money that we discussed when we... When we talked about uh, the the servant being forgiven of ten thousand talents, now um, so it's not an earth shattering amount of money, but it's enough that you feel a little bit of a responsibility if you're if it's put into your hands. When the nobleman returns, he he has been made king. He's received his kingship, and one of his servants has turned one uh, mina into ten, one One ser- one has turned it into five, and one has. Put it in a napkin and buried it. Um, so this, so far, it's similar to the parable of the talents. And because the um, one servant has has ten times his money, we can surmise from that that a significant amount of time has passed. So this is Jesus teaching. Uh, he's the nobleman. He's leaving for a far country to receive his his kingdom, and yet he's not going to return for a significant amount of time. You can't turn one Mina into ten in one year or even in in ten years. You you can double your money by normal uh the normal principles of investment would suggest you can double your money every few years. So it would take you three or three doublings or more before you would be able to say that you have ten minas for one. Yeah. So in any case, um there are, three, there are three types of people in this story. One is the, the faithful servants who have an increase on the investment that their Lord has put into their hands. One is the, the servant who hasn't done anything. He's, he's sort of he, he agrees that his Lord is his Lord. However, he doesn't do anything with what he's been given. And then finally, there are those people who sent the delegation who says, we don't want this person to rule over us. We don't accept him as king. And this king, when he returns, says, uh, let those people be brought in front of me and slain here in my presence. In other words, in the day of judgment, it, we will be recognized, if we've been faithful over the small things, if we've been faithful over our earthly ministry, whatever it is that we have to do in this life, then we will be given much greater things. He, he turns one mina into ten and is given ten cities to rule over. Um, and then there are those people who don't accept that God is God at all, and therefore they'll be separated from him forever. That's what, to me, seems to be the meaning of this parable. It's not made clear, so we have to guess what it is. So that's the parable of the pounds, and that's Luke chapter 19. Well, now let's switch over quickly. We're not going to cover Mark specifically today. Mark uh, 11 largely parallels the events in Matthew, except for a little bit of timeline uh, discrepancy um, he breaks up some of the teachings of Jesus into a couple of days, but it's not super important that we cover that so um, we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew but this is keep in mind this is also covered in mark um, so Jesus arrives first thing he does is he goes to the to Bethany has his dinner, and then he sends his uh disciples. He's heading towards Jerusalem. The time comes for them to go into Jerusalem, and this is on a Sunday. This is the day after the Sabbath. What is called today, in Christendom, it's called Palm Sunday. Of course, they didn't know they were going to be um, enacting Palm Sunday when it happened, uh, but between Bethany and Jerusalem is a, is a little village that is often called Bethphage, uh, which is a way that we kind of slaughter it it's ba- it's actually bet fage which is the house of the early fig so this kind of answers Janelle's earlier question when uh when he when he comes a- a- across this fig tree um and he and he sees that there are no figs he learns that the or the the book of mark records that the time of figs is not yet However, the, they've just passed through Bethphage, which is the, the house of the early fig. So the, the message was that Jesus was expecting figs. Now let's revisit the parable of the fig tree, the barren fig tree. Three years, the, the master, which is God, God is the master in these parables, and the servants are the prophets. This is a pretty common theme. God expects that this tree is going to bear fruit For three years, and it never does. And finally, he says, "I'm going to cut this tree down." And his servant asks for mercy. Now, this is a common theme in the Book of Mormon as well. The prophets asking God to to wait just a little longer. If you remember, um, Enos was told that he prayed that uh, the the Lamanites would be spared, that the Nephites would be spared, and then later on, prophets in the Book of Mormon. Are told that because of the prayers of their fathers, their people would be spared. And Abraham, when God is heading toward Sodom, says, "Will you spare it for ten people? Will you spare it for five people? Will you spare it for twenty people?" And God keeps saying, "Yes, yes." So this idea of the prophets asking God to spare the people and and give them mercy uh, is well founded in Scripture. And that and and so the um. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is likened to a fig tree, it's actually more accurate to say that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, are likened to a fig tree. And the message of this parable in Luke chapter 13 is there will come a time when Israel will be judged. They, what God wants from us is fruit. Now, what is fruit? So, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of proof for my interpretation of this, of this parable. We're going to go to back to Isaiah. And uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah talks about the parable of a vineyard. And he says... Um, Judge between me and my vineyard i've done everything for my vineyard so he builds a wall and he builds he he fertilizes the ground he plants the the vines and he puts up a watchtower he does everything you would want to have for a wonderful vineyard and then when the time comes the 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 vines have only borne rotten fruit in other words what God wanted and and this is obviously this is not even obviously, it's explicitly in Isaiah chapter 5. It's explicitly God wanting fruit. And at the end of that parable, he. Um, if, if you want to go back and listen to the, the lesson we did last year, I, I spent some time talking about the poetry involved. But um, at the end of that parable, he says, I was looking for justice, and instead, I found injustice. I was looking for righteousness, and instead a cry and the words are rhyming words which is rare in Hebrew, in Hebrew poetry but um i'm looking for mishpat which is justice and instead i found mispach which which is injustice i was looking for righteousness tzedakah and instead i found a cry which is tzedakah. so isaiah has this brilliant play on words and this is in Hebrew this is considered extremely brilliant um to to number one, to show that there's just one letter's difference in righteousness and unrighteousness, in justice and injustice. That that's a very powerful lesson in this in this chapter of Isaiah. But the point for today's lesson is that what God wants from us is fruit, and the fruit is tzedakah, this righteousness. The word actually means uh, the ancient Hebrew word. Means right relationships between men and and each other and between men and God. And if a if the state of tzedakah does not exist, then the way to bring it about is through mishpat, which is justice. So God will have one or the other; He will have righteousness or He will have justice. And in the in a perfect world, He would have both. So that was the that's the moral of the parable. Of Isaiah 5, the parable of the vineyard. So Jesus arrives at this fig tree and he sees that just like the parable that he had spoken earlier in Luke chapter 13, the, the expected figs were not there. Just like the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, there's no fruit when God wanted fruit. And so now the time has come. The the ending of that parable didn't take place in uh, the parable of the barren fig tree. So this is the end of that parable. Jesus says, Thou shalt not bear bear any fruit henceforth forever. And presently, in Matthew it records the the fig tree immediately withered. Uh, Mark records that they come back later in the same day and the fig tree is withered. In any case, Jesus performs a miracle on this fig tree. And he doesn't hate fig trees. He's not cruel to plants. The point is, Jesus is showing that God will wait a certain amount of time for his people, his nation, his fruit trees, his uh, cultivated land to produce fruit, the fruit of righteousness and justice. And then there will come a time when his patience is no more. He cannot wait longer. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning that Jacob chapter 5 is firmly grounded in the philosophy, uh, in that case, it's not a vineyard and it's not a fig tree, it's an olive grove. However, it's firmly grounded in the philosophy and in the scriptural tradition of ancient Hebrew scripture, this idea that what God wants is fruit to lay up for himself against the season, um, a very common theme. And so we have the the charge to bring fruit to God that he can that he can collect it and keep it and that is our right relationships with each other that really is all we take with us is our relationship with god when we die so that is the fruit of our lives have we created this this right relationship and if not then there will come a day when that fruit that tree will be withered there will be no more opportunity for it to create fruit forever uh, a, a powerful object lesson Now, as far as object lessons go, I think it's worth saying one more thing before we get on to the triumphal entry. And that is, uh, Jesus is, as I mentioned in the introduction, Jesus is firmly planting himself in the tradition of ancient Hebrew prophets as far as the way that he theatrically teaches things. So uh, there are just a couple of quick chapters. Uh, One is Ezekiel chapter 4. And uh, if you were with us last year, which very few of you were, but we talked about Ezekiel's, uh, the way that God instructed Ezekiel to act in public. Ezekiel had to do some crazy looking things. And the reason why it was effective is because everyone knew that Ezekiel was the prophet. Everyone in Babylon knew that Ezekiel had had a vision of God and had been called of God. The Even the high priest would come to him and say, what is the will of Jehovah? And so, uh there was a point at which Ezekiel was instructed to lie on one side for over a year and then lie on his other side for 3 months as uh to symbolize the days that the years in which each day was a year in which uh Israel would be in captivity um Isaiah chapter 20 Isaiah was actually instructed by God now read this chapter it's very short he was instructed by God to take off his clothes and his shoes and walk around naked for three years. And that was a symbol of the, the way that Egypt would be treated by the Assyrians. And so after three years, then when he says the meaning of what he's been doing, then everyone is never going to forget that lesson, right? Because it's been so dramatically uh, portrayed in the person of the prophet himself. And so Jesus is about to enact some very theatrical lessons through his uh, through the what we're going to discuss, uh, what what he does over the next few hours and days. And the point I want to make is, he is fitting exactly in line with the way the ancient Hebrew prophets used to teach. And he's teaching the exact same lessons. In fact, Jesus looks, if in these chapters specifically, Jesus looks exactly like one of these Old Testament prophets. And... The only reason that the Jews don't recognize him as such is they haven't seen one in over four hundred years. It's been probably four hundred and fifty years since the teachings of Joel, who was perhaps the last Old Testament prophet. So, um, the the Jewish leaders are simply not used to seeing a, a a prophet of Jehovah. They don't know what it looks like anymore. They know they know what it looks like to read about one, and they and they feel like Jesus has even told them this. They feel like they would not kill the prophets. But he, Jesus says, you will kill the prophets. You are just like those people who killed the prophets. They are your fathers, and you are going to fill up the measure of your fathers. So Jesus walks towards Jerusalem, and he sends his disciples. Now, this is really interesting. He sends them, he says, go over against the valley here, and in, this, in the village that you can see in front of us you're gonna find a tied up donkey and then it's not clear whether there are two donkeys one is the the adult and the other is the foal or whether he's using the the Hebrew device of parallelism to say you're gonna find a donkey and a colt the foal of a donkey um, naming the same animal twice in any case he sends them to get these animals now it's interesting because he gives them like a, a a phrase to use, should they be challenged there to say that the Lord has need of them. And then this, this is what happens. And then the person says, okay. So it's obvious that Jesus has prearranged this. Perhaps when he came, perhaps when he was in the area to raise Lazarus from the dead, he made arrangements to have a donkey ready for his use. And later on, we'll see that there's a similar Uh, event, Uh, this won't be this week's lesson, but a similar exchange that takes place for the upper room where they will uh, eat their Passover meal. Jesus has pre-arranged this. And we can presume in this particular case, at least, Jesus has pre-arranged it because just like these ancient Hebrew prophets, he has a bit of theater to enact. He has been commanded uh, by God, which even though he is Jehovah, that doesn't mean that he can't enact the will of God, right? So the part of him that is Jehovah has commanded the part of him that is mortal Jesus, even though they're the same people, right? I get that. But I'm just saying, he's been just like a prophet. He's been commanded to teach this lesson through theater, through an object lesson. So he's prepared that, and he has this donkey to ride on. The word has spread that Jesus has arrived, And his popularity is such, I'm trying to paint a picture here of what this was like. Um, I don't know if you have the same impression that I've had my whole life, but I have always thought that there are a few sort of previously maybe cast out fanatics who've been going out and hearing Jesus talk about the, the concepts that he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And... They like Jesus, and these are the. They're, but they're, they're limited in number. There are a few people, and they're shouting. Um, you know, we're grateful for Jesus. You're the. You're the God. You're the Messiah, and they're the ones who are laying down palm fronds, etc. The truth is that there were huge crowds, enough people that they threatened the rule of the chief priests, and we'll see some proof of that in just a few minutes. They. All the leaders of Jerusalem felt threatened by Jesus. And this was not only uh, a natural outcome of what was going on. It was totally intentional on the part of Jesus to provoke them to be threatened. He wanted to threaten them. He wanted to intimidate them. He wanted to antagonize them as much as he could. Now, we can ask ourselves the question, and we will, why exactly would he do that? Uh, but the the point is very clear jesus is no longer saying to people okay i've healed you now don't tell anyone about what what just happened please don't make it known um instead uh what he's 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 making it very public that he is the messiah so he as he approaches on his donkey to jerusalem the uh the crowds gather and as he as he enters the city, we can presume through one of the gates in the in the walls, um, they lay down their palm fronds that they've cut from trees, and they lay down even their clothing on the ground. And this is for the purpose of they they hold him in such reverence that not even the hooves of his uh, of his mounts, not even not even the hooves of his mount should touch the dirty ground. He should be elevated above the point at which he, he needs to touch the ground itself, because the ground is dirty. It is more worthwhile for them to take off their clothing and have that be soiled than the bottom of his horse's hooves. So this is the reverence in, in which they hold Jesus. And it is obvious that they fully believe that Jesus is the promised and prophesied Messiah from the book of uh, 2 Samuel on right? Now, what does it mean that he's riding on a donkey? There are, uh, you know, in, the, in our in our footnotes, it has a, a reference back to Zechariah, and it, from Zechariah chapter 9, it's been prophesied that he comes, you know, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, your king is coming unto you. This is even set to music in the Messiah, in Handel's Messiah, that, uh, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, Riding on an ass and on a colt the foal of an ass. And the so it's been prophesied. But where did Zechariah get it? Right? So it's not just Zechariah saying that this is gonna happen. There's a reason that Zechariah went into this. And it's because that uh, well, I don't want to say unequivocally, but it, it seems to be it seems to begin way back in Genesis. So if you recall, before he died, Jacob gave a patriarchal blessing to each of his sons. And in Judah's blessing, he said, the scepter will never depart from Judah. Judah, In other words, Judah is the ruling tribe. The kings will come from the line of Judah. And then at one point, Jacob says, um, Judah Judah will enjoy this rule. And then binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt, to the choice vine so again we see the parallelism between the donkey and the foal of the donkey and now we have this vine and the choice vine so again this agricultural symbolism is brought forward and then it's then Jacob says he washes his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes now without going too much into the meaning we could we could spend some time interpreting that and It's not 100% clear what that is, but we can make some guesses. But that's a, a lesson for another time. The point is that Judah is associated with royalty, is associated with riding on a donkey. Now Saul, the first kingdom of Israel, is chasing after his father's lost donkeys when he is first given his vision and then found by the prophet Samuel and anointed as king. David is sent by Samuel to Saul, originally, on a don- holding his uh, load on a donkey. And then um, when he's sent into exile, he goes with his things on a donkey. When David rides back... So at one point, David has to flee from Jerusalem because of the coup attempt by his son Absalom. And he returns later on his donkey. Uh, or a donkey is sent out to bring him back. And so these things happen in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 9 is Saul. 1 Samuel 16 is the first time that David rides it. And then 1 Kings, when Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 1, when Solomon is made king, first he's anointed. He's anointed king, and then he rides in the valley Gihon, which is the exact route that Jesus would have taken from Bethany through Bethphage, down into the valley and then up into the city of Jerusalem, which is largely, um, maybe a little bit north, but largely in the same place. At least the Temple Mount is in the same place that it would have been in the time of Jesus. So Jesus following the same route, uh, first he receives his anointing. Uh, now we'll go into, and Jesus calls his anointing the burial, the anointing for his burial. But the parallel anointing that Solomon received was his kingship anointing. And this is how Solomon became what was called Mashiach, which is an anointed one. If you recall, Saul was anointed by the prophet Samuel, as was David. And then Solomon received the same anointing. They were all messiahs. The word messiah simply meant that they'd been anointed to rule. Anointed with oil, physically anointed. Now today, anointed is used metaphorically often to say, oh, I've anointed him to to do this task or whatever. And it it just means that he's been chosen. And it's uh, an extension of the Old Testament usage because that's what Messiah meant. So Jesus has been chosen to perform a work, to rule. Um, And he's received his anointing. He's following the exact path of Solomon. Solomon, the greatest king that Israel has ever known, under whom the boundaries of Israel reached their widest extent, and who received the greatest amount of tribute, who was the wealthiest and most glorious and wisest king ever to rule. Jesus is filling up, he's becoming the new Solomon. And if you remember the Davidic covenant, we've discussed it a few times, you can look that up and find the scriptures in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. But uh, the Davidic covenant is offered both to David and Solomon, repeated to Solomon, which is that thy son will have a kingdom. Thy son, David, your son will be a son to me as well, me, God. And he, his kingdom will extend forever. It will never die. So this is the triumphant, en- triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The crowd is shouting things like, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, this is uh, a direct allusion to the 118th Psalm, uh, verse 26. Now, it's really interesting because in the temple at this time, during the week of Passover, they have, a, they have a litany that they go over again, and it's the preceding Psalms that ends with Psalm 118. So, I believe it's Psalm 114 through 118, that they repeat over and over again in the temple during the week of Passover. So it isn't an accident that they're saying these words to Jesus. And they're also saying Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna does not mean praise to Jesus or praise to God. It means help us. It means save us. In fact, the word Jesus' name, Yeshua, is actually short for Yehoshua, which the first part is Jehovah, and the second part is save. Jehovah saves. So Jesus' name is is a form of the word that also is that also gave rise to hosanna. So Jesus's name means Jehovah is help and they're saying help us. Help us God, help us Jesus, help us Jehovah. You are the Messiah. And Jesus accepts all of this. In fact, he is orchestrated, he's so clear that he has orchestrated it. He has wanted this celebration not only to happen, but to be as big as possible. In fact, at one point, the, the chief priests, they come out and they say, look, you've got to put a stop to this. These people are actually, this is Messiah language. This is going to cause real problems because the Romans are watching. They know that we have the, the tradition that a Messiah will come and free, free us from our oppressors, and they're not going to like this. That This isn't what they're saying in the scriptures, but this is, this is the attitude with which they approach Jesus. His response is, if I should put a stop to what they're saying, the stones themselves would cry out. In other words, nature itself is behind me. The entire, all of creation is rejoicing right now because I am finally coming into my own. The time has finally arrived for me to proclaim myself as the Messiah So Jesus is unabashedly accepting the title of Messiah. He's finally acknowledging that it is his due. And unfortunately, we've reached the point where I had to make the cut for the first episode. So please join us on episode two of this podcast, where we continue talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus and how he's finally making clear what will be the nature of his kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.